Third Rail Classroom is produced with the support of Bedford Freeman and Worth Publishers, the high school division of Macmillan Learning. BFW provides instructional materials and teacher support specifically for advanced placement, as well as some key on-level courses. Find them online at www.bfwpub.com. Welcome to Third Rail Classroom. I'm John Golden. I'm Alex Fuller, and this is a show where we touch on those topics in education that are just not talked about enough, publicly at least. Alex and I are both high school teachers, and we're hoping to bring you to the front lines of the struggles that teachers, students, parents, and the larger community face these days in the classroom and beyond. This season, we'll be talking about grading, probably the most impactful and least discussed topic in education. In today's episode, Alex and I will talk about how we define traditional grading practices and why we think they can be so damaging to students. Later in the episode, I interview Jim Burke, longtime teacher in the Bay Area of California and the author of many books, including The English Teacher's Companion. And we'll end as we do every episode with what's keeping us going. The sometimes rare, but always important good news in the world of education. So Alex, when I was thinking about what we were going to be discussing today, I remembered a graduation speech that writer David Foster Wallace gave in 2005. He started off with a story. He said, There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, then eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, What the hell is water? His point was to illustrate that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones hardest to see and talk about. So I think, Alex, that this is a good place for us to start, because one type of water in school is grading specifically a traditional approach to grading. We just accept that grading has been what it has been, well, because that's how it's been. So, Alex, throughout this year, you and I are going to be trying to challenge the value of traditional grading systems. So, can we start first with identifying, what does this term mean to you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we'll discuss this more throughout the year and identify some problems with each of these features. But I would consider a traditional grading system to be one which awards A through F grades that are determined by a 0 to 100% scale. Typically, points are awarded for assignments, tests, and even behaviors. Traditional grading often relies on averaging scores, and I think a huge feature of it is that it reduces months' worth of learning into a number and a letter. A lot of times, it also depends on high-stakes tests, one opportunity to show what you know, and a one-size-fits-all approach to learning. I'd agree with all that. And this is the system and the approach that I certainly had as a student, certainly the approach that I took when I've been teaching as well. One of the other factors that I think that traditional grading approach doesn't really address is any kind of rewarding of growth. A student who starts sort of already good at English in my class is probably going to get an A. A student who is maybe learning English or English isn't really their thing, starts a little lower skill-wise, has to work really, really hard just to get up to the level that other people are. So grades in some ways are sort of predetermined. Students often find themselves in a box based on their prior experiences and abilities, and it's hard for us to move them out of that box and sometimes even hard for themselves to see themselves outside that box. I think there's something too about this idea of points kids getting enough points to get a particular grade. And what happens sometimes is that sometimes the kids just run out of points. I've had a number of students tell me that in certain classes, it's already over for them, even weeks before the end of the semester, because there just aren't more points available to them to be able to pass the class. 
So I think that's one of the factors too that happens with traditional grading practices. Yeah, completely kills the motivation. So there are a lot of concerns, Alex, that you and I share about traditional grading practices that we're definitely going to be exploring in detail throughout the season. But I'm wondering if we can dig in to one of the first questions that I have about sort of an A to F approach, which is this. Who are the actual audiences for these grades? And what challenges do these various audiences pose? Yeah, the thing about grades is there are a lot of different audiences, sometimes with conflicting goals. So for one, obviously, students are a major audience for our grades. This is a way for them to track their achievement and learning. But we often find that it gets really wrapped up in self-worth and identity for a lot of our students. Another major audience for our grades is going to be families. And unfortunately, the only real communication that we have with families sometimes is through grades. We don't have a lot of other great avenues to communicate with our families. I'd keep going too. other audiences would be like school counselors, right? School counselors receive these grades because they're trying to keep their students on track for graduation. Coaches to determine eligibility for the game they can play in over the weekend. Our own colleagues are oftentimes sort of, while they're not direct receivers of our grades, we certainly look at all the grades in the English department to see how our students are doing. Administrators look at grades. Heck, real estate agents look at grades to determine property values. Colleges receive these grades. And these grades are somehow supposed to determine whether a student is ready for college. Was that really the original intent and the original audience for those grades? Yeah, we have too many purposes for too many people. And it's a reductionist approach, which takes a complex and truly beautiful process of teaching and learning and brings it down to a single data point. And that single data point, Alex, that A through F, that model's been with us for so many years that I think we've been sort of conditioned to the meaning behind those letter grades. And not just teachers, parents, universities, but most damagingly, students themselves. In other words, I think we've developed sort of an unfair, inequitable shorthand for what we mean when we assign, say, an A or a D to a student. So what do you see, Alex, as some of the dangers of this traditional A to F grade model? I would say one of the dangers is that it assumes and encourages a bell curve of grades and a sorting of students instead of rewarding their growth and truly developing their capacity. I think also that different audiences take different meanings from the same grades and that teachers assign a variety of meanings to the same grade. That one specific letter from one teacher can mean something different than it would come in from a different teacher. You know, the students take these grades very, very deeply personally, so much so that kids will begin to identify themselves as a, I'm an A student, I'm a C student, or I'm, I'm just terrible at English, Mr. Golden, I'm a, I'm a D student. What does that mean? How have we gotten these grades to the point where kids are identifying with this sort of artificial traditional structure that we've given them. A student who might identify themselves as a quote-unquote C student might only do as much in the class as it would take to get that C. So they've already sort of self-limited based upon their own identification with these letter grades. Yeah, that's, that self-limiting identity I think is super important because as teachers, we want to empower our students to do their best learning and we don't want to be hamstrung by a system which limits them. So Alex, for a podcast titled Third Rail Classroom, I think we've actually been dancing around a key belief and a key issue that I think that you and I both share, which is 
that traditional grading practices are inequitable, full stop. They're inequitable for our students of color, those who are experiencing the effects of poverty, those who are English language learners, and those who are receiving special education services. What are your experiences specifically with this? Yeah, John, this is so important. And we will have entire episodes devoted to these effects. I completely agree. Traditional grading is absolutely inequitable in the purest sense of the word in that it only serves the needs of some of our students. And it's designed to perpetuate a stratified society based on race and class. Traditional grading makes assumptions about what students can do outside of school that are not realistic. Think homework, for example. If a teacher assigns an hour of homework a night, multiply that across six or eight classes, all of a sudden a student has hours upon hours of homework that they're expected to complete outside of the classroom when maybe they need to work. Maybe they have obligations taking care of a sibling or another family member that don't allow them to put in that time outside of the classroom. Traditional grading assumes that everybody goes home to a quiet house with a desk and lots of time to work. And maybe even a paid tutor that can help them with that homework and to support them going through. So these issues of inequitable practices come into play so often. We have decades of data that reveal clearly that our students of color perform worse in our grading systems. We know this. We know that our students who are learning English as a second language are at a significant disadvantage in all of their core classes because of our choices of grading practices. So all of these things are here and they're ready for us. So my wondering to you, Alex, is why are we not doing anything about it? You know, I think that the sensitive, personal, third rail nature of grading limits the discourse that we need to move forward, right? It prevents us from having the conversations that we need with each other, with students, and even with parents that are going to be crucial if we're going to take our grading to a place that actually serves the needs of all of our students. Exactly, Alex. And I think these are going to be the conversations that we're going to have to have over the course of this year, not just in this podcast, but in our department meetings, in our staff meetings with our families and with our students directly to try to have a more equitable education system. Coming up after this short break, we'll have my interview with author and teacher Jim Burke. Welcome back. We are so excited to have Jim Burke with us today. Jim has taught English in the Bay Area for 35 years, mostly at Burlingame High School. He's a nationally recognized speaker and the author of numerous books, including The English Teacher's Companion, What's the Big Idea, Uncharted Territory, and many more, most of which are on my shelves. He's been an advisor to several committees on adolescent literacy and standards, and he has won the NCTE Conference on English Leadership Award and the California Reading Association Hall of Fame Award. I've been fortunate to know Jim for over 20 years, and he has been so influential to my teaching philosophy. Jim, it is truly an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Welcome to Third Rail Classroom. It's great to be here. So Jim, Alex and I have been talking about the fact that because teachers oftentimes don't get actual training in grading and grading practices, oftentimes we end up relying on our own experiences as students to influence our own grading habits and approaches. So I'm just curious, to what extent is that also true for you? It, it turns out to be ironic that some of my best training as a teacher is, is having been a terrible student. So the person that I would identify as being responsible for me becoming a teacher is a teacher named Ken Kitchener, who's my English teacher as a freshman and a senior. And I was failing his class senior year. 
and I graduated kind of in the bottom 10% of my high school class. And we played racquetball. So we so we had a like a good connection personally. And I had this very distinct memory of us walking across the lawn at school one day and him saying, do not make me fail you in my class. So I pretty much, I think I pretty much got, you know, like the, the gift D minus where he just couldn't pull the trigger on that. I was actually looking at my transcript for another different context the other day. And, and you know, it's like, yeah, thank God for those PE grades to bump up the old GPA. Although I, I think what I also realize now is, you know, my dad dropped out of high school, like when he was about 15, 16. My mom finished high school. But if you don't grow up in a household, you know, like most of my friends in high school were very college bound. My parents did a nice job moving, kind of moving across town to better and better neighborhoods. So all my friends were raised knowing they were going to go to college. If you're not going to college, you don't know what grades look like, you know, or what what they're for. I certainly didn't. It never really occurred to me that there was anything that they were going to prevent me from doing. Although, of course, I didn't know that I was going to try to do anything at the time. And, and then you just get into like, do, do they make sense? My, my daughter, when she was in high school, there were two AP language teachers. Nora had AP, you know, comp teacher one and her friend Alexandra had the other one. The other one just was kind of of the school of like, oh, you're all super smart kids. You know, they're all going to get A's because that's why you're in this class. And Alexandra at some point almost started like testing just like how little she could do. You know, I mean, almost kind of like leaning up against the locker outside of class 15 minutes before class, write the essay. And can I still get an A? And Nora had, you know, the far better teacher who was really in the spirit of, of you know, AP class and all that kind of stuff. And Nora got a B plus in the class. And more than anything, what you, what you realize is it just renders the, the grades meaningless on both sides. That's such a perfect example, right, of the teacher's choices in the policies that are sort of going to result in these grades that have this disparate impact. So we could tell kids this, this thing that I think is true. The grade doesn't matter. The learning does, right? Those words have come out of my mouth so many times, right? We love to say that. And yet at the same time, you have this, your daughter in this case, had to work so hard to get this B plus, and this other student didn't work at all to get the A. So do grades have anything to do with learning? So one of the things that, that I was thinking about before, you know, we, we started our conversation this morning was, you know, some of the different words that come into play. Like you've got grades, you've got assessment, you've got tests. And they're, you know, they're revealing words, right? Like, like grades, you know, you get into gradation, you get into, you know, gradual, you get into graduation, you look at, you know, this idea of measurements, you know, the, what was the, the etymology was from the Latin gratis step. So that idea of taking a step up, you know, as in a progression, whereas like the word assess is to, you know, the, the origins of it are to sit beside, right? And then I think about, Things over the years, like Don Graves, you know, the wonderful Don Graves was a, a tremendously important mentor of mine. And, you know, Don used to say things like, we should read like a doctor, not like a judge. And that's such a transformative way to think about things, right? Like, like if you get out of that, I'm, I'm trying to judge, you know, what, what sentence to give your, your work here. And I think so often, you know, that the kids feel more like they are kind of hanging in the balance. You know, well, of course, you gave John Golden an A, you just like him. It's so obvious you're always calling on him in class. And that kind of favoritism perception, you know, of, or otherwise is a further part of the, the damning process of the grades. So when you talk about grades and learning, you get into these like Ernest Morrell, 
we were doing some work at the college board and, and Ernest would talk often about the difference between the inspiration point and the perspiration point. And so he would talk about, you know, work and assignments that were done that are just kind of purely guided by engagement, kids that can sit and talk and sit in class and talk about whatever they want, even if they haven't read the book and, you know, and not feel in any way penalized or out of the loop about all that kind of stuff and, you know, kind of suffer no consequence. And then the perspiration point, which is, you know, it's like that point in the gym when your your muscles begin to hurt because you're like you're building muscle. And so to find that that sweet spot, right, which gets into that territory of grading, because that's where they've got some skin of the game. Like, like, you know, I've never done something at that level that you're challenging me up to. And that's a moment that I just think about so much. Hey, I want to see if you agree with this premise here. When I'm with my PLC, we talk about curriculum. We talk about strategies. We talk about texts that we're going to teach. I mean, we talk all the time about the sort of structure of, you know, the, the work, except for the actual calculation of the grade. That very rarely do I actually talk about with my colleagues. And I mean, like, literally, like, do you take points off for late work? Do you give 20% for homework? Do you right. give zeros for plagiarism? Whatever. Those kinds of things we don't talk about. And I'm, I'm just curious in your experience, either as a colleague, you know, in your own building or out in the larger educational world of which you're a part, that's been your experience or not? Oh, I think it's a hundred percent. I mean, I think it's such a great observation, John. And, you know, a couple of things come to mind about it. One is the program that I've been in the last couple of years somebody started trying to have these meetings, like bring student work to the table and have these conversations. And it was so interesting, you know, probably not the best time, you know, because we're still like running the, the COVID gauntlet, but, but you could just tell, like there was a level of performance to it because people didn't want to be caught out and feel incompetent. So they would be passing the papers out with all these apologies and all this other kind of stuff. Or, or somebody might say something, you know, about a paper and assignment and you realize you did what? Like you just gave all the, you know, all the kids an, an A on that or, or, or whatever. I think those are some of the reasons why, right? But it's loaded. You know, we often think about grades as feedback to the kids, but they're at least as much of a grade on us, right? As they are on the kids. And a lot of us, I think, struggle to create a space to be able to listen to that. All right. So this season's all about grading and what way that is a topic that we don't really talk about enough in education. But I'm curious, Jim. Are there other topics that you would consider to be sort of third rail topics in education these days? I actually just posted a blog yesterday you know, on my Uncharted Territory blog called Teaching in Troubled Times, The Challenge of Having Impossible Conversations. This summer, I went out to do some work with Jeff Wilhelm's Summer Institute in Boise, and the purpose of it was to have conversations like, the, like their state funding was based on doing this, was to develop units that would help people figure out how to discuss what they called contended issues in the classroom so that we could move towards a more perfect union because there's, you know, serious tensions in, in that state around different issues. It's difficult for different teachers at different times in different places, but I think, you know, your listeners aren't just English teachers, but I think English teachers and history teachers Social studies teachers are finding themselves a little more on the edge of difficult conversations these days. And the question of how do you design such a unit? And then, you know, the point of your whole podcast, okay, and then you have them do whatever, then how are you going to assess that? Oh, you you gave me a C plus because you don't like my view. 
right, Mr. Liberal, because I, you know, I'm not all bought in. And that's, that's just like really hard territory to know how to navigate. Jim, we like to end all of our interviews with just a recommendation, book or other piece of media that you've encountered recently that you think our listeners would be interested in. And because this is an audio medium, listeners, you can't see what I see, which is Jim's office is wall-to-wall books. And every time that I get to be in a room with Jim Burke, I always leave with a list of 10 to 20 different books that I need to check out based upon his recommendations. So this is going to be the hardest question, actually, for you, Jim, because I'm going to ask for you to limit it to one, but then other ones I will post on our website. So Jim, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? So you've limited one book and it's, it's really hard. It's impossible, really. But Elaine Castillo has a new book just out called How to Read Now. And she talks about, so she's a you know, Filipina, she's a queer author, she grew up in the Bay Area, and she talks about all sorts of ways that reading needs to change now and, and the kids need to be challenged to read. And one of the big ideas in there is she, she talks about the unexpected reader. So basically, she'll, she'll say like, Joseph Conrad never wrote his book expecting that somebody like me would ever read it. So I'm still trying to understand it fully. Like, you know, I don't think she was saying he should have even though it was 100 years ago. But she talks about, as a student, you know, this experience of, you know, here's the next book that, that we're going to read. I love this book. I'm really excited. I love Great Gatsby, whatever, whatever the book might be. And feeling like, as a student in school, that she was never the person that the author ever expected would read the book and so never took into any consideration her or somebody like her and what a kind of alienating experience that was or that is. I think it raises very interesting questions as a book, and it's just out. Great. Thank you, Jim. And we'll put a link to that book, How to Read Now by Elaine Castillo, on our website, as well as I'm sure the 10 to 12 other books that you'll be emailing me about afterwards. I have one final question for you. Yeah, 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 please. What's my grade on this podcast, John? So that is a great question. You are our first interview, so I have no models by which to judge. Can I reserve the the right to give you a, a mark until after the end of the first season? You absolutely can, but you're also reminding me why my daughter, who I just, you know, I just adore and found as interesting as a student to hear about, she would always try to be the first kid to go. And I'm like, why do you do that? She goes, well, because they have nothing to compare to you. So they always give you an A because, because, because you, you know, you, you've, you've bailed them out, right? Like, like they're grateful in the spirit of my daughter, you know, I guess I've adopted that approach. So anyway, honestly, you know, when you think about, Hey, Jim, let's have a conversation about grading. You know, you could say, well, the, one of the reasons why people don't talk about it is because like, it's grading, like, like, you know, what's interesting about that? Like this conversation is just been such a really interesting conversation and makes you realize grading is related to everything. Thank you again, Jim, for taking the time for this conversation today. Coming up, Alex and I will share what's keeping us going. So we like to wrap up each episode by reminding ourselves that not everything in the world is so terrible. So Alex, what's keeping you going? Oof, lots of things. A lot of good stuff going on. I want to talk today about something called Transit to Trails, which is a club that I worked with some students to start last year. It's very simple. We take public transit and we go hiking. Currently in our district, we have no outdoor programming whatsoever. A lot of great opportunities for students, but really no organized opportunities for them to get into nature. So we want to open up opportunities to as many students as possible to get outside and reap the many benefits of spending time in nature and spending time with friends. That sounds great. We'll have 
information of transit trails on our website for you to be able to follow Alex and his group this year. What's keeping me going is a story from a small school district in Wisconsin that held off plans to purchase copies of When the Emperor Was Divine by Julio Otsuka, which is a 2002 novel about the Japanese internment during World War II. Claiming the novel doesn't show enough balance, there are sadly lots of stories about book bannings like this one these days. But what puts this story in the what's keeping me going category is the response from students and families in the district. Even though it is 97% white, the community responded with outcry, protests, and a student-written petition signed by hundreds of people in the community. The petition said in part, As residents of the world and heirs of its history, we must be given the opportunity to reflect on the past and point out the pain and suffering. This reflection is meant to prepare ourselves to create a stronger country and world by rejecting outright the mistakes of the past. Alex, I find what this student wrote to be so moving. I'm not sure about the outcome of the story yet. We'll include some updates and links on our website. But this story reminds me of the power that we have working together in the shared responsibilities we have for the children in our care. So I salute the student who wrote this petition and for the hundreds of community members that have stood up to support the education materials that we know that our students need. John, I love that story. Anytime we can hear about students, families, and teachers working together based on their values and beliefs, it's, it's really motivating for me. In our own district, we've seen a lot of students get involved with climate activism. And I had some students who were really involved in helping to plan some marches and protests this year. It's just so, so inspiring for me as a teacher to see our young people taking on that responsibility of fighting for what's right. And that's what's keeping us going. Okay, well, that's it for this episode of Third Row Classroom. Thank you so much to Jim Burke for joining us today. You know, Alex, I think you and I raised a whole lot of great questions about grading, but we haven't offered a lot of specific solutions yet. But that's what we'll be doing the rest of this season. In our next episode, we're going to dive into one specific aspect of traditional grading practices, homework. We hope that you will continue to follow us throughout this school year as we explore new possibilities for grading. So look for our next episode about early October when our first progress reports are due. You can find all our episodes and links to lots of resources at thirdrailclassroom.com. And you can find us at Twitter and on Facebook. And if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to Third Rail Classroom on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Third Rail Classroom is written by Alex Fuller and John Golden, produced and edited by Laura Locke.